0: So Money, Episode 984, Best of 2019, Money Advice for Millennials.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money.
0: Welcome to So Money, everybody. Time for more 2019 Reflections. Just days away from the new year. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. They say that youth is wasted on the young, but I don't know. The younger guests I've had on my podcast this year certainly defied negative stereotypes that we hear often about millennials and young adults, that they're directionless, broke. From a woman who saved $100,000 by the age 24 to a 31-year-old man who, despite many odds, would go on to become one of the top real estate brokers of the year, there was much to learn from some of my guests who are just starting out in the quote-unquote real world. They're just getting used to adulting. My first excerpt is with Erin Lowry, a returning So Money guest. Erin, as you might know, is the founder of Broke Millennial and has launched a series of books named after the brand. Her latest book is helping her generation master the ins and outs of stocks and retirement savings. It's called Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. And here in episode 871, she discusses what sparked the move to dedicate this next book to investing and how to start even when you might not think or feel you can afford to be in the market. Here's
2: Erin Lowry. It really just was a natural progression that at first I wasn't aware of being the natural progression, which sounds kind of funny. It came out of getting a lot of questions and especially direct messages on Instagram and emails and tweets, and people just kept asking about investing. And one thing that I found incredibly fascinating is the first book does have a very small investing chapter in it. It's a very high level overview, pretty brief, mostly focused on retirement because that's how most of us start investing in the first place. And at the bottom of that chapter, I recommended some, here is other reading if you're interested in furthering your investing knowledge. And I got some responses that said, hey, I took a look at those books you recommended, and they're honestly all too complicated. And the thing is, those were the books that were geared towards beginners. And I don't disagree. Even though a lot of them are great books, they are written in a way that kind of assumes you have this base level understanding of the stock market. Even if it's something like they just think that you know what an index fund is or a mutual fund or an expense ratio, just that common language that gets used. And Yeah, we don't necessarily know that information. I certainly didn't when I started investing. And that was the inspiration for the second book. I wanted what I call a true beginner's guide to investing.
0: And so where do you start if it's not with the assumption that you know what an index fund is? How far back do we have to go? First of all, also love the fact that you're doing a book on investing because I also hear this from a lot of so many listeners. How do I start investing? How do I start? How do I start? How do I start? That's the first question. It's the best question. You should be investing, but what's, what's
2: the baseline? Uh, what's, what's the one hundred and one? one Well, for me, I took a few different paths early on in the book. And first one is explaining why you should be investing. And a lot of people, I think, will pick up this book because they're interested, but there's still that intimidation factor. So, Part of the beginning, I spend talking through why it's important to be investing, how when you invest, your money is doing some of the work for you, and that's a really critical thing to understand. And you know, kind of getting into a little bit of the nitty gritty about compound interest and time and inflation and all of that. And then I also really break down terminology very quickly in the book. There's a whole chapter that's exclusively dedicated to just decoding the language of the stock market and the terms that you're going to need to know. But the thing that I think is really critical is this idea that I like to position as putting on your financial oxygen mask. So you think you're ready to invest, but the question is, are you really? And I take people through this whole process of figuring out, am I actually ready? As one of the experts quoted in the book, he likes to call it, earn the right to invest Douglas Bonaparte. And I really love that language and that idea. So I have a checklist that I actually have people go through to figure out if they're ready or not to actually start investing. Now, there's a huge caveat in this entire conversation, and that is, of course, retirement. And if you have access to an employer mass retirement plan, yes, please be taking advantage of it. When we're talking about earning the right to invest, it's really more about this idea of taxable accounts outside of retirement.
0: Right. And so, when do you feel like you've earned it? Because a lot of us in your demographic, too, millennials, are saddled with student loans. They're maybe not making uh, what they would consider to be enough to support their living expenses. Some of them are living at home with parents. They're not saving. And so, what are the bases you have to cover before you're ready to invest? And by the way, Douglas was a guest on So Money. He's excellent, great Um, financial planner for millennials. Love him.
2: Yes, he is so good. And he's actually going to be at my New York event. So, I'm very excited for that. And in terms of earning the right, as he says it, or putting on the financial oxygen mask, as I like to say, There's a few steps that you can go through. And one of the first ones is if you're still in the scraping by phase, so kind of kicking it back to the first book, then no, you're not ready to be investing outside of a retirement account. But the first couple of things that you need to do is you need to set goals. And that sounds so simplistic. But with investing, goal setting is critical because that actually dictates everything about how you are going to be investing. It lets you know how much risk you can afford to be putting on your money. It lets you know if you should be investing that money in the first place. If one of your goals is in the next one or two years, if it's more of a short term goal, well, you probably shouldn't be investing that money. But if it's 10 or 15 years away, then it might make more sense. So goal setting is a big thing in number one. Then everybody's least favorite word budget, but I like to rebrand this as cash flow. You do (laughs) need to make sure that you know how much money is coming in, how much money is going out. Without that level of control over your financial life, you really don't even know how much you can afford to be putting into investments. So that's a very big first step. Also, the almighty emergency fund is critical if you're going to start investing. You need to make sure that you do have that cushion. I personally do not advocate for ever investing your emergency fund. That needs to be somewhere locked away in a savings account, preferably with far more than 0.01%. You honestly could be earning 2% or more at this point on your savings account. But make sure you've got, I would like to say, a minimum of three months up to six months worth of living expenses in a savings account. And that can be a really big barrier for people in terms of getting started. I think that's one of the biggest ones that people feel overwhelmed about. And I do like to reiterate this concept of it being bare minimum living expenses you need. It's not your current lifestyle. It's if everything goes sideways tomorrow, how much do you need? to pay rent or your mortgage, keep the lights on, pay all your bills, including any debts you might have and put food on the table. Just kind of that bare bones budget. That's the amount that you need. Erin is
0: now working on a book focusing on money and relationships, all types of relationships. And I'm looking forward to that. Next up, how much money do you think most 24 or 25 year olds have saved up? Tori Dunlop was a guest on So Money right around the time she surpassed $100,000 in savings at the ripe age of 24. Tori is the founder of Her First 100K. It's a platform to educate women about money and encourage them to join her on the journey to amass 100,000 by 25. And here in episode 874, Tori explains why she was inspired to save so much so soon. And how she did it. You're such a rock star. 24 years old, on your way to saving a hundred G's. Yeah. Crazy. Okay, let's just start there. How are you doing this?
3: Uh, first thing I'd like to acknowledge is like I had I had a great support system. I had a really great financial education growing up from my parents. I'm an only child. We're we're all a really close, tight-knit family. And so I had a great financial education. I started my first business when I was nine. I ended up owning 15 vending machines by the time I graduated high school. Uh, So I learned how to, I learned how to money. I learned how to pitch myself. I opened my first checking and savings account to run my business when I was nine, 10, 11 years old. So I grew up with, a really great understanding of what it meant to manage your finances and manage them well. So uh, I graduated college and negotiated every job I had ever had, negotiated every offer, uh, which was a huge, huge part of getting me to 100K. And we're mm-hmm. still on that journey. But I think the negotiation was key. I also had a really great side hustle that I booked right out of college. So I had a, my nine to five job uh, that I saved some from that, You know, a, a chunk of savings from my nine to five income. And then everything that was side hustle my Money went straight into savings. So that was a huge nest egg that I built up. I also invested really early. I started investing right out of college as well. And when I got my first quote unquote, big girl job, I had a Roth IRA. I had a SEP IRA through my business. So there was a lot of strategic things I did that I was able to do because I had a really great financial education
0: incredible. But what's motivating you? I know a lot of people who come from, you know, resources and perhaps get financial literacy growing up and maybe they don't um, have the goal of being a six figure individual by their 25th birthday. This was a clear goal of yours from very early on. What do you want this money to provide for you?
3: The biggest thing money provides us, especially as women, is financial freedom. And it's the freedom to make any sort of decisions. So I ended up last At this time, actually, last year, I was unemployed because I took a job that I thought was a perfect fit for me and had to quit 10 weeks later because it was so toxic without another job lined up. And I was able to do that because I had an emergency fund. So what I not only am trying to do and striving to do is provide financial freedom and financial education for myself, and then also pass that along to others, which is why I founded my business. Having your financial life together is not only a woman's best form of protest, but it also allows us to have the financial life that we always wanted. So whether that's yeah, quitting an unhealthy job, leaving an unhealthy relationship, having the freedom to do that, having the freedom to quit your nine to five and go start your own business or take a vacation or retire early or even have enough savings to you know make sure you're comfortably retired at 60, 65. Money allows you to build the lifestyle you, you want and the, gives you the freedom to make choices to have the lifestyle you want is making a lot of headlines for her
0: financial accomplishments at such a young age. You can learn more about her at herfirst100k.com. A fellow So Money millennial, Alex Banayan, has interviewed and connected with some of the world's most accomplished humans, from Bill Gates to Quincy Jones, Maya Angelou. How did he do it? Well, he explained on April 8th, episode 870, how he dropped out of pre-med in college, to go on a seven-year journey to interview all these hard-to-reach people for a book. How it started, this is interesting, was with winning the showcase showdown on The Price is Right. Secretly one of my dreams. It's how we funded the beginnings of this experience. And the following excerpts from our conversation capture Alex's biggest money memory as a kid, and later how he dealt with, with telling his parents that, guess what, mom and dad, I'm not going to finish college. You're also going to hear from George Itzak on this recording, a friend of mine who co-hosted the episode with me. Here we go. Here's Alex. Let's talk about money again a little bit and unpack some of your own personal financial journeys Starting with you know your childhood.
1: Uh oh.
4: Um, this, is,
0: this, is, this is airing in April, which is going to be uh, Financial Literacy Month, Beautiful. and in partnership with our sponsor Chase, we're asking guests what would you describe as the moment or the experience that really taught you about money at length? Going back to perhaps childhood, mm. or even that Price is Right moment, but as you think of yourself as someone who's financially knowledgeable or still learning, or having a certain mindset around money? Where did that come from? And tell us that story.
1: You know, I was somewhat entrepreneurial as a kid. I remember, you know, just trying to like sell lemonade, you know, that typical stuff. But I would say my entire view of finance changed in my late teens, early 20s when, look, I grew up with you know, the greatest parents. My mom is the reason I am who I am. Um, at the same time, my mom did a very good job of keeping my sisters and I in a bubble, um, which allowed us to grow up, you know, somewhat carefree. We didn't know the realities of our family. You know, I knew that we had pay less shoes and the other kids had cool shoes. But like, again, I had shoes, so it was cool. Like, no complaints. I had no idea that when I was five, my dad's used car lot went bankrupt and that my mom had taken out a second mortgage on the house to help pay for our schooling. That was never talked, finance was not talked about and almost to this day still isn't talked about much. So it wasn't until I was 19, I started like pulling back the curtains and my mom's like, whoa, 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 you know, no looking back here. Um, Because she just wanted us to live our lives and not worry. She was sort of, you know, creating this separation so we could live our lives while she figured out how to fund it. Um, And it wasn't until I was 19 or 20 or 21 that I started learning that it was funded by a lot of debt. Um, Credit card debt, you know, mortgages. And... The older I got, the more I saw the amount of pressure and stress and fear that comes from living in tremendous debt. Um, what it does to relationships, my mom and dad's marriage, it felt like every fight was about money and it just... F- And it it wasn't like one day I was like, I'm never going to live like this. It was like a slow trip over years of me just saying it doesn't have to be that way. Now, look, I understand the life I live is because of the sacrifices my parents made. Um, So I don't knock them at all. If I was in their position, I probably would have done the same thing, which is, you know, do whatever it takes to give your kids a better future. Um, so I'm the the reason I even have the privilege to say these words out loud is because of what they've done and what they've lived through. Um, at the same time, I also think you almost owe it to your parents to learn from what they went through and not repeat it if you have the opportunity to not repeat it. And I'm just so committed to not. I just see what debt does to people. You know, it creates these psychological shackles where you don't feel you have that freedom you don't you know you sort of are like imprisoned by the next payments you know and that transformed how I view my own finances of you know and again I I know how fortunate I am to even say this but I would rather live modestly under my means than live luxuriously over my means because I just know the trade-off financially. I would rather go to sleep without worrying about debt than have a nice car. Mm-hmm. That's my financial mantra.
0: Yeah, that's great. And you're 25.
1: Yeah, 26. 26. You know, since you bring up your family, one of the, I think, most interesting parts of the book, and I think the part that will really resonate to all readers of all backgrounds is you're wrestling with family expectations. I think we all go through this as we grow. Wrestling up. Wrestling is a nice way to put it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I'm getting the <laughs> shit beat out of me. But yeah, you know. Yeah, how
0: about your? You said you have siblings.
1: I have two sisters. They're the best.
0: And. and- so just quickly, where did, where did they land? And like relative to you, did they go, let's like, sort of like the traditional path of, you know, in, in, Iran, in Iranian culture, like you become an engineer, a lawyer, a doctor or a CEO. Right. Otherwise you're a loser.
1: Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, my sisters are, but when you said loser with that accent, I just like cringe because I was like, Oh no, I like, I was like back at home.
0: Alex, don't become loser.
4: Okay.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my my sisters, my sisters, and I could spend you know hours talking about them, are remarkable. My older sister is a attorney who specializes in special education law. So pretty much her entire job is to help kids with special needs get the rights they deserve. My younger sister is a behavioral therapist who helps kids also with special needs. And my younger sister is currently getting her PhD in psychology to help Families and children with early trauma—they are my, you know, They're my best rocks. friends. Yeah. And so, to George's point, we talk point, every day, five times a day.
0: Yeah. Um. Now, comparing the before and after of sort of your parents and your families, um, you know, embracing or lack thereof of your journey. What's been the transformation there?
1: Hmm. Well, it's definitely a big transformation because when I started writing this book. You know, we sort of joked about it. You know, when you're the son of Persian immigrants, I pretty much came out of the womb. My mom cradled me in her arms and then stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. And <laughs> when I was just starting the first year of writing this book, I real you know, this is after the price is right. I realized sort of like I have to sort of come clean that like, hey, guys, I'm like not really going to my pre-med classes. I'm writing this book and chasing down Bill Gates it was like World War Three in my family. You know, my mom crying, my uncles and aunts, my grandparents, you know, everyone's in. And then when I ended up leaving college mm-hmm. in order to fully pursue it full time, you know, I'll never forget, you know, for just weeks, my mom just hysterical. And to the point, even my grandmother, my mom's mom, who, you know, helped raise us, I will never forget her coming over, you know, standing on the front steps of our house, trembling, saying, we didn't sacrifice everything for you to throw it all away. And when you're 19 and these are the people who raised you, it feels like your own world is falling apart and you have this fork in the road of these people did sacrifice everything for me and I love them more than anything and they love me more than anything. How can I turn my back on that so I can, you know, quote unquote, follow a dream? But then you have to ask yourself when you're 90 years old, are you willing to live a life of wondering, what if? And that was at that time at 19, the hardest decision I had to make. And so that's, you know, the beginning of the journey. Now, fast forward to the end where, you know, the book came out. You know, we're here in New York City for the book launch. And my mom actually flew out from LA to New York and crazy enough, it was the first time she's ever traveled alone. You know, she came out to New York to the book launch and she was standing in Times Square when the book came out, you know, the morning of. And the look on her face when, you know, uh, the we did a big event at NASDAQ and they put like a big billboard of the book in Times Square, right when the book came out, my mom's face and her cheers and her smile was, I started tearing up, not at the billboard, but on my mom's face Mm -hmm. looking
4: at it.
0: That book where Alex documents all of his interviews and his own coming of age story is called The Third Door, the wild quest to uncover how the world's most successful people launched their careers. Finally, remember Casanova Brooks? He made an appearance on So Money on episode 850, a young man who battled cancer in his teens, lost his home, lost his job, and experienced the passing away of his mother all within the span of one week. Hitting rock bottom, he says, gave him the confidence to take on new challenges, take on a growth mindset, and rebuild his life. Now in his early 30s, Casanova has completely rebuilt his life as a successful real estate expert, locking in 46 real estate deals in just his first year. He's also become an author and has been invited to speak all over the world. This excerpt is taken from the top of our interview after I've you know shared all of his great accomplishments with the audience. And here's what he had to say about what motivates him and how he's managed to bounce
4: back after such a hard road. Yeah. Well, thank you for the introduction first off. And I would say that I feel like the weight of the world's on me. I think once you have it in your mind once you have it in your heart that you really just want to impact the masses and you want to be the best version of you, um, you, it's, it's very hard to, to sleep a little bit. It's very hard to rest, I should say, you know, so each and every day I'm just trying to figure out how I can be a better version of myself and how I can keep pushing myself to go forward because I do have two small children. Um, and my son is now just about to turn eight years old. So every day, you know, he's in that stage where he's watching what I'm doing rather mm-hmm. than what I'm saying. And so I got to make sure that each day I go hard because I heard a, somebody said to me one time and they said, you know, if your wife and your children could follow you around for one day at the end of that day, whatever time that you shut it down, what would they say about the way that you conduct your day? What would they say about your work ethic? And so every day I try to keep that into my mind. Like if my son followed me around one day, which he has obviously, but just to say, wow, dad is really going after it. Or is it like, hey, is this really what you do? Then I could just go play Fortnite all day. (laughs)
0: Oh my gosh. Well, you know, you're someone who has um, proven time after time to really um, excel despite adversity. You know, you had cancer when you were 15 and you spent two years fighting that and eventually went into remission. So happy about that. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing quite like a health scare, right? To put life in perspective.
4: Absolutely. And so for me, it was it was different and difficult as well, because Growing up, I was never one to ever be sick. I never had the chicken pox, measles, anything like that. So at 15, when all of a sudden you're playing sports and one day you just find yourself not being able to breathe and you're constantly taking these naps and you're an active boy or even girl, that's something that's definitely scary on its own. And so when the doctors that, you know, told my my mom and grandma that, hey, it was more serious and they were going to ship us off to another university, um, my, my parents were like, hey, what's going on? And they were like, well, we think it might be you know, cancer. And from there, it was like, whoa. And and I didn't really understand the severance of, you know, having cancer. You always, hear, you always hear the word. But for me, I hadn't lost anyone that was that close to me. And I just wasn't really aware of what that meant. But obviously, over those next two years, through going through lots of treatments and lots of tests and things like that, and, uh, and really not being able to be as active and as social as I wanted to be during my golden days of high school, it, it really took, you know, me leveling up mentally to understanding what I was going through but understanding as well that it can all be taken any given day from you so you have mm-hmm. to live each day to the fullest.
0: Do you think that's part of what has fueled you to to be so successful? I mean, you in the first year that you turned to real estate as your, like your career path. And this was after kind of doing a bit of soul searching. You, you kind of embarked on real estate. You locked in 46 deals in that first year in Omaha. And you were just telling me before we were live that uh, the average number of deals for a rookie real estate agent is like one or two in the first year. You did 46. You're like almost <laughs> one a week. And, and, you know, I already listed of all of your other incredible accomplishments. And I wonder the catalyst for all of that perhaps was, you know, the, the near death experience as a cancer survivor at age 15. And then it was losing your mom and by the way, your house and your job in a short period of time. Um, do you also, so how, there is a logic to this a little bit, right? Like that happened to you. And of course you could have just... Sulks, right? You could have just like been someone who like wallowed in their misery, but you turned that around for yourself. And do you feel like that was really the, the tailwind for you?
4: Yeah. So I would say that for me, I always when I get into something I'm I'm always thinking to myself that I want to be the best version of me in this thing that I could do. Right? So it's always rather than having so many fears, I always just want to know can I hit the unknown or the unthinkable. And as you were talking about, you know, a lot of people say you got to have patience and 4 years is not a lot of time, but for me, I know that right now I'm someone where my motor runs 120 miles an hour and I pride myself on that. But I always think to myself, you know, at some point, this will slow down. So I got to be able to make sure that I give it all that I got. So one day I don't look back and I have any regret. So when I first got into the business of real estate, the reason why I got into real estate was because I wanted to be the Lord of my land. Coming from where I come from, my family never owned businesses, never owned cars, and they definitely never even owned their own homes. So we were moving apartment to apartment, but I came across, you know, a video and they were like, you got to figure out how to be the Lord of your land. You got to figure out how you can change the trajectory for the people that are going to come behind you. And so that was a big deal for me. And I just seen that like life was just going so fast. And what did I really have to show for it? Everyone had said, you know, you got a lot of potential, but I didn't have a blueprint. And I just wanted to live up to the expectations of my mom. I wanted to live up to the expectations of anybody who believed in me. And so I just figured I would go as hard as I could at anything that I was doing to prove that it's possible. And I, I didn't want to use not having financial backing or any type of resources as a crutch. I just I, I wanted to to go hard and show. And at the end of the day, I think, while wow, I get a lot of praise about the real estate. It's really a real estate is a people business. And that's what I love mm-hmm. about it. For my whole life, I've just always tried to focus on building meaningful and effective relationships. If you build the right type of relationships and you have accountability and you communicate well, people know that they can depend on you and you can be successful in anything. Um, So that's what I've always just tried to focus on. And I believe that that's really the foundation of how I've been able to build what I've built today.
0: Casanova has a book. It's called Real Estate, Play the Game, Like the Winners. So thanks for listening to the show today. I hope everybody is having a peaceful break from work. Hopefully you're not working too much this week. You're spending time reflecting on 2019, looking ahead to 2020, just days from the new year. I hope you're going to have a peaceful beginning to 2020. And I will see you back here on Wednesday with more of my favorites from 2019. I hope your day is so money.